Hello and welcome to Dream Life Best Fit Role with me, Nikki Smith. I'm a psychologist and a career and business coach. I believe everybody can love their work and I help people to use their natural strengths to transform their work life and love their job. These podcast episodes shine a light on individuals who have created their Dream Life Best Fit Role or business. I focus on how they've played to their natural strengths those activities that energize and inspire them and how they've conducted mini experiments to take the fear out of change and generate momentum. Hello, I'm delighted to have Richard James with me today. Richard moved from being a sprinter to a police officer. He was specializing in covert operations, uh, developing operational strategies, training surveillance teams, managed evidence. He even headed up a police station. He made another career change and now is the founder of Rivica Investigations and Covert Solutions. He is succeeding in his mission to raise the bar of covert surveillance services within the private and corporate investigations and sectors. He gives individuals and organisations superior outcomes usually only afforded to the government sector. He founded this company in 2014 and works across Australia and overseas. And a little while ago, I heard about Richard's career pathway till now and I knew I had to share it with you. So Richard, welcome. And I'd love to hear, can you share with everyone your, you know, your career pathway till now? Yes. Hi, Nikki. Thank you. Thank you very much for that introduction. Yeah, look, as you mentioned, um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm not very dinkum Aussie, although I am now. But I was born and bred in, uh, in Wales, South Wales, in the UK. In 1991, I, I joined the police force. Not as something I've always wanted to do, but funnily enough, it's because of my sporting career. I was actually invited to apply for the police because I was playing rugby at quite a high level. So actually when I did that and when I got into the police force, I quickly found that I didn't want to be known with my colleagues as, as, a, as a rugby player who just happens to be a policeman. Uh, I wanted to be known as be respected for being a police officer. So I quickly decided not to play for the force. I wanted to forge my career in the police force. So that was 1991, 92, and I quite quickly found... I suppose my niche, I was actually posted to a location whereby it's probably the worst place to work as far as crime and high unemployment. And I was posted there as a, as a punishment for not playing rugby, to be honest. It actually made my career because part of the learning with the, the people I worked with there and the type of area I was working in, I quickly found and learned that you had to learn to communicate with people in order to succeed, to get results. And that's where my career really saw blossomed and forged its own path, to be honest, because as a result of the people I was dealing with day in, day out, and the ability to communicate at their level, I quickly forged a lot of trust with community, and in particular, some of the crim criminal elements who felt quite comfortable in disclosing certain information to me to be used on other criminals. And that got me quite a lot of good results early on in my career, to a point where I got identified as someone who was going somewhere. And uh, within 12 months, I got taken out of uniform and put into a plain clothes department. And really, that's where my career forged its own path in working for the sort of drugs teams, working then undercover, and then going to a, a surveillance unit and working within criminal investigations. That happened for about the first eight years of my service. I threw my hat in the ring to go for promotion to become a sergeant. So I was fortunate enough to pass my, my exams, pass the boards. And that is when I got promoted to a sergeant in the year 2000. Still in South Wales and uh, actually got posted back to my hometown where I was brought up, which is quite unique because 
nobody actually knew I was a police officer because I got posted to a different area from uh, where I was brought up. So it's quite a bit of a learning curve and for both myself and my family because all of a sudden people who I was in school with and knew from back home found it quite difficult to accept that I was a police officer. So for about 12 months, I actually ran a police station in my hometown, dealing with all the sort of policing issues you'd have around the community. But also I then uh, got put into the custody suite where I was responsible for the welfare of the prisoners, as well as dealing with lawyers regarding bail conditions and applications. So it was another huge learning curve where I really had to learn the legislation and the law to make sure that uh, the decisions I was making with the prisoners was obviously in, in the prisoner's best interest and would be held up with any court cases. After that, I applied for a position back in the department as a detective sergeant. I applied back to the department where I worked before working in surveillance and and undercover. And in 2001, I think it was, uh, I got the position running COVID operations for the whole of the police force in my area. And that really was the sort of uh, the first milestone in my career from a sort of management point of view and also from dealing with serious and organised crime. We were responsible for multi-criminality, so cross-level criminality from different forces and also into the country. So I was liaising a lot with uh, other organisations as well as Interpol and basically planning and preparing operations to arrest and disrupt serious and organised crime within the force. In 2015, I met a, met a young lady on a holidays who was from Australia. We commenced a bit of a long-distance relationship. Couldn't be much longer, to be honest, Wales to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty far. So over, over the 12-month period, we become quite serious, and we ended up getting married a year to the date we met back in Wales. And I had to make a decision whether to stay in Wales or to go back to Australia where my wife's family were from, and, and that's the decision I made. So in the end of 2013-14, beginning of 2014, uh, I moved to Australia, having taken a career break from uh, from the police force. And I was quite fortunate in that my boss at the time, he knew I was coming to Australia. He actually left me with an offer that if I found somebody of the same position in the police force in which I was going to live, he'd be able to facilitate a job swap or a role swap for the Australian officer to go to Wales to work. And for myself to get a job with, as it would happen with Victoria Police. So it was a very generous offer. But uh, when, when I came to Australia, first of all, it was uh, 2004. There was a lot of headlines regarding police corruption and, and a lot of sort of media about things that had gone on in the past. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't feel comfortable in going back into another police force and going into a, a sort of management rank when I didn't know much about the legislation and the lifestyle. To be honest, I wanted to be able to give my marriage a good crack. And as a police officer, and certainly in the role I was doing, I was away from home a lot and working long hours. It's, it's probably not the best footing to start off on a marriage. So I made that decision that I wouldn't go back into the police at that time. And uh, I'd find something which I could use my skills for in something of a less stressful environment. So with that, I actually quickly got taken on uh, as a work cover investigator for WorkSafe Victoria. And whilst I was going through the process of being inducted into that job, I'd also applied for a position with a new agency that was starting up in Victoria. Now, as I started with, with WorkCover, I was doing a lot of multi-agency walk-on operations with the Federal Police, Victoria Police, Customs, the Tax Office, Centrelink. My responsibility was to, on behalf of WorkCover, 
sort of uh, represent them in, I suppose, walk-on operations where we go into businesses and we'd have a combined approach where we'd be looking at the employer for offences under the Work Cover Act, whereas Centrelink would be chasing people who are claiming Centrelink and working there, whilst immigration, we end up chasing people away who were there illegally in the country. So it's a combined multi-agency approach to certain problems in businesses. Whilst I was there, I actually got offered positions with uh, other agencies due to my background and experience. But I also got offered a position with the Office of Police Integrity, which was formulated at the beginning of 2014. And it was an opportunity for me to get back into the COVID world because the position I was going to be doing was uh, as a surveillance officer for the OPI. So I took that position and for between 2004 and 2008, uh, I was part of a COVID team which were providing support to corruption investigations uh, into not so much criminality, but sort of misconduct and, and possible corruption within Victoria Police and the links to the criminal world. As you can imagine, back in, over a decade ago, there's still a lot of involvement with uh, the likes of the underbelly. As, as you know on TV, there's all characters involved in the underworld in Victoria at that time. So during that time, it was great. I had an enjoyable time uh, investigating what then was uh, interesting corruption cases involving Victoria Police and organised crime. But I was there as an operative, not as a manager, and I was very keen to, to get back into the field where I was actually progressing my career as a manager. And I was, I was, I was keen on promotion and, and taking on more responsibility at that time. And I was fortunate enough to apply for and, and be offered a position uh, interstate in another corruption agency where we moved moved the family. And by this time, we had a, a young child. So we had a little baby at the time. So we moved the whole family interstate. Uh, and I took up a position as a team leader, manager of a COVID unit for another corruption agency. Again, investigating serious organized crime, corruption, misconduct in the public sector, but also I, I took the opportunity to further my training. So I was involved in a lot of training for those other agencies. I did a bit of work with the federal police where I'd help out and train on their surveillance training. We did a lot of work with, with ASIO and the Department of Defence. And I suppose I got an interest in, in the sort of different types of investigations from different organizations and how they sort of subtly changed the way in which you do your investigations based on whether it's intelligence, evidence, criminality, uh, or some sort of corruption investigation. I suppose I was able to sort of tailor and take all the best bits out of all the legislation I've worked under, whether it be the British legislation, the Australian and I suppose combine a working knowledge of investigative tactics and, and strategies, which blended quite nicely and quite succinctly in with the sort of environment in which we work in those other states. In uh, 2014, uh, we decided to, to come back to Victoria. And I suppose it was at that time, it was probably the hardest career decision to make because I, I'd been involved in government and law enforcement investigations for almost 25 years. And, and I'd always wanted to sort of to run my own business. And I suppose one of the things I was always keen to do was to, to leave a legacy for my son. I wanted to be able to try business for myself because I found that I was always very passionate about the work I did and, and the standards of my work. And sometimes when you work in a large organization, it, it doesn't always get recognized for the, the amount of work you put in. And I felt that if I was to do that on my own, it would be I would be accountable for every every result, every failure, and I had no one else to blame. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to be able to create something which I believed I could provide in the private sector, equivalent to what government and law enforcement investigations could provide their sort of investigations. And that's when uh, I created Rivica. 
which is an anagram of uh, my name, my wife, and my son's name. So in 2014, we created the business. And at that time, it's just myself. But I wanted to be able to create something which could actually raise the bar of what investigations were. And what I actually did initially in the first couple of years was to use my, my experience and my knowledge and and offer my services as an instructor, as a trainer. And I joined a registered training organization in Victoria. And I started teaching a number of security courses. And one of the courses I taught was the investigative services course. So we did that in Victoria for a couple of years. And as well as investigations, investigative services, we trained security risk management, security armed guard, bulk control, and all the security courses that come along with that. I was quite fortunate because the, the company I was working for at the time had a couple of other uh, stakeholders who were able to sort of see what I was doing and what I was trying to change and improve in the training they were providing. And I got offered a position to go and train over in the Middle East. And I think since 2015, I've been regularly going over to the Middle East where I assist in, and in developing other investigation courses and courses surrounding security to the Middle East. And I go over and, and present those courses on a regular basis. And I've actually got three more at the end of this where we're going over to provide uh, investigative courses for uh, for government over in uh, over in Qatar. So as part of my business, I, I wanted first of all work within the private sector and get a feel for the quality of investigations and what the level of work was for for private investigators in in Victoria as, as well as in the other states. And I looked at the sort of training that was provided for people doing these courses and realistically looking at the work available to them once they've done that course. And it's quite apparent that the course enabled you to get a qualification, which then permitted you to apply for a license to Victoria Police to become a, an investigator. But in my mind, the, the skills that you learned doing that training wasn't sufficient to be able to hit the ground running as an investigator once you got your license. So I started developing my own training courses, which would be a, an addition to the certified course, but it was a, a professional development course. And I developed my surveillance training course, which I offer to investigators and uh, individuals who have already got their certificate three investigative services. And again, I wanted to restrict the availability of that training just so I was training the people who were going to be using it for a profession and not training people who just wanted to, to stalk their girlfriend or stalk somebody. So I didn't <laughs> want to be able to sort of disclose the skills and uh, the tradecraft that uh, has taken so long to develop. And I just wanted to just give that training to the people who were going to be using it for a lawful purpose and not potentially for other reasons. That sounds so, really smart because I think most of us in the general population are pretty fascinated with the covert operations and the skills that go along with that. So yeah, that sounds really smart. Yeah, I just didn't want, didn't want to be responsible for training somebody up who's going to use that for, for his own sort of selfish reasons and potentially hurt others. So, And that's one of the key things as an investigator. We always consider the liability. The sort of, we, have a, we have a duty of care to the people, people we investigate as well as anybody else that could be impacted by what we do. So it's very important for, for us to ensure that we actually look at the knock-on effects and, and the chain reactions down the line to make sure that everything we do is above board and, and doesn't impact anybody to the detrimental sort of effect. That's brand, That's pretty new news, I think. I would imagine that you've got a client that you're wanting to serve and it's just great to hear that actually both, both parties are taken into account. It's, it sounds like you naturally did many experiments throughout your career. You tested 
being a sprinter, being a rugby player, being a police officer, going undercover, even using those skills in different areas for multi-agencies and then creating your own business. What kind of attitude do you adopt when you're thinking of, of making a change? Do you test ideas out or do you dive all the way in? How do you approach it? Oh, look, I think it's fair to say I usually test things out. And I suppose it wasn't until we spoke about micro tests and little things that I actually realized I, I was doing that naturally and I, without yes. even thinking about it. Certainly, when I, when I left the sort of government sector, I wanted to try something. And I tried to see how I would fit in within the private sector, not knowing that I, that I could become successful. So it was a little sort of a test time where I spent a couple of months in, in working for other private investigators, uh, other firms. And then as the training progressed, it was like looking to see what market there was out there and whether you know, investigators coming to the market did actually want further training and they would value that. So it was not something I jumped into 100%. It was something I saw, did a little trial, come back, then I assessed whether there was any value in that. And it took a bit of tweaking, so I had to come back and forth, but eventually... Once you realize, yeah, you know, I, I feel good about that. And I was getting good feedback on the value that I was providing. But also I was getting, I was feeling good for helping others in, in getting to a level in, in their chosen career. So I was learning myself, but I was also getting some reward from, from what I was doing and the people I was meeting and helping develop in their careers. Oh, that's brilliant. Have you got a highlight or two from working within the police force? Like any highlights from that point? Because again, I think the general population is pretty fascinated. It could be a highlight from the police force and a highlight from your own business that you can share with us legally. <laughs> I'm, glad you, I'm glad you put that word in legally. Uh, look, yeah, a lot of my cases, I'm not permitted to disclose, uh, certainly the ones whilst working for corruption agencies. And it's one of the highlights um, from my police career. I can go back and just give a bit of history. In uh, 1984, where I worked in South Wales, we had a very, uh, very horrible murder, a murder of a young lady who was, she was a prostitute in Cardiff, but she was murdered in a very nasty way on Valentine's Day. So as you can imagine, it made huge news, Valentine's Day murder, 1984. And as a result of the investigation, and this was before I joined the police force, so I, I was only about 14 years old at the time, so I remember it on the news. And four people got convicted of the murder. And it's fair to say that these four people were of an ethnic background. They were career criminals. And I think it was about 10 years later, they went to the Court of Appeal for their conviction, and they got found that their conviction was unsafe. So in, I think it was 98, I was uh, on the surveillance team at the time, and I was riding a police motorbike undercover. And I'd actually come off the motorbike on some ice one day, and I was on light duties because I couldn't ride a bike. And the superintendent of major crime, he wanted a, a volunteer to come and assist with a review of this murder of the Lynette White murder that happened in 1984. So I seconded as a detective constable to this uh, very small team of two retired ex-chief superintendents from outside forces. And I was there as sort of their conduit with the South Wales Police. And I was involved in the first historical murder review in my force. To cut a long story short, I, was, I had to go and interview all the witnesses again, including the police witnesses and assist in finding people and going through all that evidence. And you can imagine the murder case, there was, there, was a, there was rooms and rooms of documentary evidence, forensic evidence, and just going through and just reviewing every process of that investigation. And for me, that really taught me about attention to detail and being focused and 
being structured and and having a sort of clear path as to where you're going and why you're doing things. And, and for me, that was an amazing, amazing learning curve because what actually happened to top and tail this investigation a couple of years later, DNA forensic had, had progressed to a point where they did another DNA test on, on the items found at the murder scene and a new person came into the scene. Because obviously we, we had four people being released after the case, but there was still obviously someone out there who was responsible for the murder. And DNA had, had had a hit on this individual and my surveillance team or the team I was attached to had to then go and do some work on this uh, suspect. But of course, because I was involved in the review of the murder, I wasn't permitted to go on the team because potentially looking down the track for defence looked at that, there could be a conflict of interest in uh, not having those sterile corridors. But long story short, this person got convicted of, of the murder. My involvement now is quite high in, in the initial review and establishing further lines of inquiry, which then led to this person being identified and DNA being obtained and, and the conviction of that murder. So from a police thing, that was one of the greatest uh, things I enjoyed being part of. Yeah, that's brilliant. I can't even imagine going through rooms of evidence. That sounds extraordinary. I tell you, Nick, it was floor to ceiling, full of shelves and boxes, and it took a fair while. <laughs> <laughs> Understatement. <laughs> oh, yes. And have you got a highlight from Rivercar, from your business that you want to sh- that you all can share with us? Oh, where do I start? I mean, uh, look, every every successful job I do is, is potentially a highlight. And the beauty of what we do is, is, you know, sometimes the police cannot help private individuals where even though the effect it has on an individual is huge, sometimes the police cannot invest resources to do what's needed to get a result for the individual. And we did a job where a client came to me deeply concerned about the safety of, of their daughter. Now, their daughter had been involved in a, in a relationship with an individual who was uh, been in and out of jail. He was actually on parole for, for other serious offences when he was out of jail. And this relationship had gone sour and a lady had, had terminated the relationship. And this fella didn't take kindly to that and he became very aggressive and violent towards her and in fact broke in actually held her against her will and actually tortured and assaulted her quite badly this was obviously reported to the police and and this guy was circulated as wanted a breach of parole anti-violent restraining order and obviously the indictable offenses of what he committed and i suppose because the police got so much work going on they haven't got the resources to go out and, and try and track this person down unless it's something as serious as a murder. Uh, so the client came to myself and said, look, this is the concern we have. This person's at large. Our daughter is in fear of her safety and, and we're going to keep her in a secret place until we find and get him arrested. So he came to us and asked us if we could actually locate him and then sort of liaise with the police to get him arrested and basically hand him over to the police. And we, we started working on a Friday evening and we found him quite quickly based on, on the intelligence and the, what we did know of him, notified the police of what we were doing. And we ended up following him from across about seven different suburbs from one location to the next. Where we, we put him to a house and we identified quite quickly from the cameras of goings that the house was quite likely being used to supply drugs. And our, our fellows in there for 45 minutes. I was trying to get the police to come around, but they couldn't get there in time. So we had to follow him again to another location. He ended up going to a pub. He went into the pokey's room and again, we contacted the police. We found him. We still got him under control. You need to come and get him before he moves away. And it turned out he, we were there quite close. With our, our team was in uh, getting evidence of what he was doing inside the pub and he was actually dealing drugs at the same time. So it took a bit of a while for the police to actually get there. We were able to direct him to where he was. 
and he actually went into another room when he knew the police was coming and uh, we were able to get him arrested and locked up and then eventually charged for those offences. So it's, it's not a normal case for us, but what we were able to do is to provide that, that young lady with some peace of mind that she, you know, she could go back home. The person that was responsible for the serious assault on her had been arrested and, and was now in the process of being dealt with through the court system. That was a great result for us. Brilliant, isn't it? And I think what I find surprising is that I don't think I understood what kind of services exist in terms of private investigation and that you can actually work alongside the police. So what do you want people to know about the different ways a private investigation or investigator can help us as an individual and as an organisation? Yeah, of course. Look, I mean, investigations are are broadly split down into three different categories. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, ha- you have your, your circumstantial investigation or your factual investigation where we can be used to find out something that's happened in the past. Now, that would involve, and it's normally with not so much a private individual in this one, but more so corporate and businesses where investigators can be used to go in and, and interview witnesses regarding an event, a circumstance or, or an offence maybe of something that's happened. And that could be an injury, an accident in work or it could be bullying, it could be theft, it could be anything whereby the, the clients want to know the truth. They want to know the facts of what has happened. So the first one is the circumstantial investigation where we're actually investigating something that has happened in the past. So we could come in today and, and look at all the evidence available, all the information from documents, from video footage, from witnesses, and take statements and interview people regarding something that's happened in the past. So that's one aspect of investigations. I suppose the second one is then surveillance investigations. Now, I've always taught that the, the art of surveillance is, is putting a trained observer in a position to witness something that's happening then and there. So the difference between a normal person witnessing something and a surveillance operative or an investigator who's skilled in surveillance is that when something is happening, we are making note of the particular details. We know about identification and and how to gather and collect evidence of the offence and evidence of identification. So by putting a trained observer in a position to capture something as it is happening, that is crucial for court because we then can give our testimony and under oath in the court and we are backed up by video or photographic evidence which corroborates our observations. So those type of cases, we get used a lot in the private sector whereby individuals want us to find out, it could be something, uh, it could be a family law matter whereby uh, we think is concerns regarding uh, the safety of children um, where surveillance can be used to, to monitor and observe the behaviours of individuals. We get used a lot for theft from workplaces. Obviously, we get a bit of uh, infidelity where people like to know what's going on with their partner. They don't, they've lost that trust and they suspect something is going on. So w- what we're able to do is to conduct the surveillance operation on those individuals and then provide a sort of impartial, unbiased account of what has happened. And we do that by our observations and by reporting back to the client what we have witnessed through our five senses. And from a factual point of view, not from an opinion, because everything we provide is based on facts and and normally based from what we see, what we hear, uh, as well as sometimes using the other three senses like taste, touch and smell. Uh, So that's the surveillance capability. And then I suppose the other one is is skip tracing. Another source service we provide is that we can get called upon to to find people, people who have gone missing for whatever reason, whether... They've just, it's an old school friend that have disappeared or down to a point where it could be someone who's, you have some concerns for the safety of an individual. 
So we were able to do usually a desktop exercise where we utilize the skills of investigators who are good at searching the internet, using databases, following leads, and then so coming up with a sort of a location of where we believe the person is. And then we can sort of confirm that 100% by either making inquiries in the area or even doing some surveillance on the address to confirm the occupants. So I suppose those those are the three main areas we work in. Oh, that's brilliant. And so, Richard, what does it take to, to work in this area? Would you share a bit about your natural strengths, please? Oh, look, when, you, when, I, I found, when I was asked about my natural strengths at first, I had totally different understanding or belief of what my natural strengths were. So if I said what I believed they were first and then tell you what, what I found my top strengths are, <laughs> I was a bit of a surprise. So, look, I, I thought my strengths were, were commitment, being dynamic, being able to make decisions on the fly, attention to detail, patient, tolerant, communicator. I always teach that one of the most important skills for an investigator is, is communication. And we, we actually tailor that from the first time we communicate with the client right until the time we cli- in, uh, communicate with potential uh, persons of interest. Uh, but it's quite interesting after I did the Clifton Strengths test that you sent me, Nikki. Yes. But, uh, my, my top uh, five strengths come up totally different to what I expected, but I'll tell you what they are. They come up as uh, individualization, harmony, positivity, belief, and developer. And when I looked at what the descriptive are of those five categories, it really made it clear to me why I've gone into the role I have in in training and in the developing and bringing on and mentoring of new investigators because my top five strengths, which I didn't realize, actually fit quite nicely in with my business and what I'm trying to do with uh, imparting my knowledge and and experience to new investigators and uh, raising the bar of the industry. Absolutely. Isn't that fantastic? (laughs) It was a bit of a a surprise, but I'm I'm very glad I did that. Yeah, excellent. So we're talking about the StrengthsFinder 2.0 and I often get my guests um, to do the assessment if they haven't done it before the interview. But also, Richard, what you're talking about in commitment, dynamic, attention to detail, patient, tolerant communication, those elements are most if not all those elements are actually in those strengths but i think what the strengths finder helps us to realize is our natural strengths are things that energize us and we find easeful so we often undervalue them so what appears in the report and it's a five pages of individualized reporting which is so helpful is that we realize what we find easeful and natural and energizes us they are actually very helpful, important, and actually we can add value to the world by demonstrating these strengths. Yeah. And another thing which which it shouldn't really surprise me is that uh, four of those five sort of strengths are all come under the relationship banner. They do. Which I've always said about as an investigator, you've got to be able to form a good relationship. You've got to be able to communicate. You've got to develop trust with the people you're working with. So it it should have given me no surprise that uh, those are the top five. Yes, that's wonderful. But also there is a dash in individualization. Um, It's about working with people productively. And it talks in there about your, you know, attention to detail and how you instinctively assist individuals by directing their attention to facts or data that you've examined in detail. So there's, they've got that analytical element in there. And in harmony, also, there's a dash of you really like reaching the goals that are set. Yes, in terms of if you think about positivity and developer together, so developer is recognizing and cultivating the potential in others, and positivity is largely around optimistic outlook and ex- getting others excited in about what they're going to do. It does spell trainer, doesn't it? It really 
really does um, <laughs> does yeah. elicit trainer as a potential career path. I love it. It's always nice when it works out, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it's not actually that surprising. If you think about the number of mini experiments you've done, you've been instinctively getting there yourself, haven't you? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Look, looking back at my career path and the decisions I made and where I've naturally gone into one direction. Yeah, you're 100% right. I love that. Okay, next up, Richard, I'd love you to set a listener mini challenge or mini experiment. What do you have in mind? I might have two for people. Anybody who might think that investigations would suit them. There's two little categories and I'll, I'll do one for each discipline of investigation. I'll do one for the sort of factual investigations, which involves interviewing and talking to people. And then I'll do one for someone who would consider maybe surveillance as a way for them. So one of the things I always teach with regards to factual investigations is that Obviously, relationships and a rapport with individuals are crucial to getting information because as a private investigator, nobody has to talk to you. It's all about getting them to want to talk to you and want to be able to help you. So you use a lot of empathy and communicating at their level to sort of try and put them in a position of the victims so they are willing to help you. So a really good micro-experiment for people who think that you know, they, they could be a good investigator or they'd like to see how they'd work out is that a little experiment would be is that when you come across somebody you don't know or even somebody you do know, but it makes it a bit easier for you to try and get that person to talk to you and to open up about something about them, which they wouldn't normally tell you. Now, whether it's uh, you know, speaking to somebody on a cash point and just get them to, you know, to say more than just charging you for the groceries, just get them to sort of engage in conversation. Uh, and by just sort of looking at, how you engage people and how you get them to talk to you actually would give you a good indicator as to you know how comfortable you are at talking to people and and how comfortable you are at being uncomfortable talking to people so would that be something that would be a good one nick i think that's excellent and do you think one of the tips is to continue to ask open questions that certainly works for me or do you have another tip in terms of getting people to open up Look, 100% open questions. Uh, closed questions, we only, rarely use them only when we want to clarify points. One of the things I always teach, my very first question you, you do when you speak to someone is a very broad, open question. Tell me everything you know about X, Y, and Z. To get that person talking, and then it's really important we listen to what they're telling us and then take the lead from those answers because they already want to talk about what they've said. So it's easier to carry on that conversation and never interrupt them when someone's talking. Let them finish and exhaust everything they wanted to say and then come back in with a question, which actually is a, a rephrase of one of the answers that shows that you've paid attention, it shows that you've listened to the answers and it shows that you're interested. I love that. And you can either practice with a stranger if you're thinking, I want to test out if I could be an investigator. Or if you want to boost your relationship, just do that with your partner. Listen until they've got nothing left to say. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Yes. <laughs> I, I suppose the other one I was going to sort of say is for the surveillance operative. Surveillance is all about situational awareness. Uh, surveillance is about when you're following somebody is to read in what their body language or even their vehicle is doing to try and preempt and work out where they're likely, what their next move is going to be. Uh, so it's all about situational awareness, paying attention to the small indicators of an individual. And I suppose one of the reasons why I love this job so much, I love watching people. I don't mean 
in a sneaky, sort of weird sort of way, people watching. I love watching people go about their day-to-day business, whether it's somebody ordering a cup of coffee, watching people meet up in a restaurant. I'm just trying to work out the relationship. I'm trying to look at their story and seeing if I can establish what type of relationship the individuals have, what they like me to do next. That's a great little test you can do every day. See if, if, if you can understand and read people's behaviors to see if that could actually be a, a career path that you could do as an as a investigator. Brilliant. Two fantastic micro-experiments you can get started on in the next week. So if you're interested in finding out more about Richard James, you can go to www.rivica.com.au. That's rivica.com.au and it'll be in the show notes on the website. And if you think about it, there's two ways that you could connect with Richard. If you're thinking, oh my goodness, I want to be a private investigator and I think I'm going to be brilliant at it and I want to do it for morally good reasons, um, get in touch. <laughs> or if you've, if you've got an issue on your mind, either as an individual or as someone senior in an organisation, then actually Richard's services could give you some peace of mind. So Richard, thank Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. You're welcome, Nikki. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. Brilliant. Okay. Speak soon, everyone. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more stories like this one, please subscribe and spread the word. Till next time. <laughs>